Welcome to Creatures of the Industry, an ongoing series of oral history interviews with the people who made the building and construction industry in Melbourne and regional Victoria since the 1960s. These podcasts are sponsored by the Concrete Gang in cooperation with Community Radio 3CR. And break a couple of concrete pores to back our log of claims. So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high. It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky. We've got a fighting history and we never will be cowed. Our labour is a name to make a man feel proud. And it is indeed welcome to Creatures of the Industry, a uh, regular recording, uh, hopefully, of a whole lot of people who have made a contribution to the construction industry since the 1960s, and maybe not as long ago as that. And this morning we have one of the old hands, Mr Brian Boyd. Good morning, Brian. How are you? Good morning, Ralph. Hope you're well. We're walking and talking, so we're not doing too bad, are we? Not for our age, no. <laughs> yeah, so uh, let's get down to some dates. When did you come into the industry and uh, when you did start, where did you start? Um, I got kicked out of university in 1970 for anti-Vietnam War activities and headed north to Queensland to make a fortune in the, um, in the resource sector that was developing at the time. So I went on to this building site in Gladstone, Queensland, got a job with another bloke that came up with me. The first bloke that uh, an hour after I'd started work digging a hole was the shop steward, Builders Labourers Federation shop steward. He said, um, you guys in the union? We said, no, we're not. He said, uh, well, you're happy to join? I said, well, I am. Uh, my, my father was a, a union man in... Uh, the Trobe Valley in Gippsland all the way through the 60s for the uh, Boilermakers Union and I knew a fair bit about unions through him so I'm happy to sign up. He then um, set up a bit of a payment scheme that you could pay it over the next couple of weeks when you got your pay packet. So that's when I joined the Queensland branch of the BLF but within a month or two I was uh, back in Melbourne, went to the BLF union office and organisers Harry Carslake and Paddy Donnelly uh, got me starts on other jobs around Melbourne, and that's that's where I started, 1970-71. Now, Harry Carslake got recently mentioned in a podcast because he was the Latrobe Valley organiser. So uh, Harry had a long career with the BLF and uh, spent most of his time, I think, in the Valley. He did, yes. Yeah, I remember all that. Yeah, yeah. So did you work in the Valley as an... As a builder's labourer? No, he, he got me a job in the outer suburbs, uh, eastern suburbs, which I think 
Um, Halfway to the Latrobe yeah, Valley. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think his route was uh, through the eastern suburbs to the valley and back. And in those days, the BLF organisers had wedges of areas they had to represent. So, you, uh, but always the wedge had a bit. It uh, went out to well the eastern suburbs part. I got when I became an official years later. Uh, went all the way out to the um, past the Dandenongs, but it still came right into Collingwood. So everyone had a, an inner city part of the wedge, and um, all the way out down to you know Mornington Peninsula or Geelong or whatever. So that's what uh, I think Harry got me a job uh, in the eastern suburbs somewhere from memory. So you could uh, work your way in to the union office. And then back out again if you lived in that direction or you started out centrally and moved out and came back in. Yes. So there was constant uh, contact with the office because in those days, no mobile phones. No, no mobile phones. But there was one innovation that uh, Norm Gallagher did introduce, I think, and that was the uh, two-way radio. Yeah. yeah, well, when I eventually became a temporary organiser before becoming full-time in the late 70s, um, I got uh, Car Five. Was uh, was my two, my call sign. So it was three I, Car Five, the three IJ, which was the code for the office. Yes, I remember all that, Ralph. There was a uh, an American police show called Car Fifty Four, <laughs> and uh, there were a few people who used to make jokes about who was actually driving Car Fifty Four in the BLF fleet. But we won't go there. No, we won't go there. <laughs> but there's a few. Uh, People who, uh, this is just a bit of a digression, there were a few people who didn't exactly uh, like the old uh, two-way radio. The late and great Mickey Lewis told me he knew how exactly how to get a lot of interference so he didn't actually have to respond. Yeah, well, uh, not here to talk about what <laughs> Mickey got up to. <laughs> but it was some good stories. Anyway, you uh, came back to Melbourne and where... Did you get your first sort of Melbourne start, do you remember? Well, besides the one from Harry, I then got another job out at um, Williamstown on a, a, a major block of apartments through uh, Paddy Donnelly. Then Jimmy Bacon got me a job at the Melbourne Underground in the mid-70s. Right uh, in the middle of the blue. Right in the middle of the, of the 1975, 74, 76 D-Reg and the blue with the New South Wales branch, Yes. And um, But in those days, if you remember, 75 was a big political period because um, John Kerr and uh, Malcolm Fraser. Fraser had sacked the Whitlam government. Yep. So uh, we, the building workers and the building unions and the BLF in, in particular were very active in the streets for a number of months over that uh, political chaos that, was, that happened with uh, the sacking of the Whitlam government. Uh, and the uh, the underground jobs that I was on were instrumental in delivering hundreds and hundreds of workers to those rallies. Now, the job itself, which is now the underground loop, which is, I suppose, getting superseded to some extent by Metro Tunnel and all the rest of the uh, plans for rail in the future, at that time, the underground loop was probably the biggest single civil job going in uh, Melbourne. Yes, it was. It, it, there was hundreds and hundreds of workers involved. Uh, I was on the uh, museum site, but there was at least three or four other parts to it. And um, the tension between um, the BLF and the AWU was ramped at, uh, on that site. Um, but um, uh, definitely at the museum site, 
uh, we had most of the coverage, but there were skirmishes at all sorts of places, Parliament House Station and all the rest of it over the next couple of years. Well, a few people ended up in uh, some physical confrontations and uh, one regular of the concrete gang over many years, Georgie Despard, ended up in hospital. Up yeah. at St Vincent's uh, with a nice old uh, injury to his skull. Yes. A lot of stitches. Yes, he did. Uh, and there was other injuries too to other people as yeah. well. Uh, it was a very messy demarcation. Now, at that time, and dates are always a problem as we get older, but at that time, the South Eastern Purification Plant uh, was ending. The Westgate Bridge was ending uh, in terms of its second stage after the collapse. So this became the number one civil job, as I understand it. In terms of the industry at that time, the BLF, the Building Industry Group of Unions, and all the unions that made it up had been working very hard to make some dramatic changes in the industry conditions, as well as the wages. But you mentioned the D-Reg, and how does that fit in to this process of trying to move forward with wages and conditions. A lot of people are interested in not only what it was like uh, in those days to work on big jobs, but also what were some of the conditions that we take for granted now which maybe were being fought out at that point in time. Yeah, well, there was always an outstanding uh, list of um, issues uh, about safety and about shorter hours and... um in clement weather, all these issues were dealt with on awards and um, and site by site levels on all the sites that I was on. But the, the original first deregistration that Malcolm Fraser did, but uh, sorry, with the employers did in 1974 to 76, and Fraser actually let us be re-registered after that. After we made a deal with the NBA to go into all these issues you're talking about, so there was a more determined issue to clear up some of the outstanding issues about pay, about health and safety and about, and about um, shorter hours. So that happened after 76 when the BLF got re-registered and working with the other unions uh, at the building industry group at Trades Hall. So a lot of these things started to be developed, including shorter hours. So 36-hour week in particular was pursued uh, with the Grocon sites in the city, the Rialto, uh, and some of the supermarkets, massive supermarkets that were being built, like out at Knox. Yeah, the so Knox Shopping Centre. Yep. So all these things were pursued uh, with some vigour after 1976. But there was also a lockout, was a six-week lockout. Uh, during that time, uh, I remember being on the South Eastern Purification Plant, we all got locked out for six weeks, if I remember correctly, except the electricians. And... Uh, that was part of not only the problem with deregistration but also with the fight for portable long service leave and uh, a whole lot of other issues. Now, yeah, long you, service leave. Yeah. Yeah, do you remember some of the other issues that were involved in that? Uh, well, by this stage, by the, uh, I'm going from site to site. Um, I ended up uh, being banished by the master builders for my activities at the uh, Melbourne Underground. So I ended up out of Brushy Creek in Lilydale. So some of these bigger skirmishes that were going on, we only heard about now and again out, out on the smaller sites that uh, 
organiser Bobby Dalton got me a job out there when the master builders banned me from being on city sites. So I can't remember that particular lockout, to be honest. Well, one good thing that did come out of all of that period of time was the portable long service leave. And that was the first portable long service leave scheme anywhere in the, in the country and certainly it was the first time that building and construction workers got to enjoy long service leave, in theory, because yeah. there are a few catches. Yeah, yeah, and my recollection is also the second st- stage of the Westgate Bridge was instrumental in some of that, uh, developing that particular campaign for the long yeah. service leave win. Yeah, and people in those days uh, used to get a slip of paper when they finished on a job, and uh, that was supposed to record their service in the employment of whoever the registered employer was and all those bits of paper got put together and when you got uh, 15 years up, then you got your long service leave, 13 weeks. Yes, and, 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 the, and the problem with that paper issue was that not every building worker got one or not everyone kept it, but they knew they'd been on the industry for quite a while and uh, the union office had to spend a lot of time trying to get tax records or whatever to go back to the Portable Long Service Leave Scheme office to try and prove some of these workers had actually worked in the industry even though the paper, the paper uh, had gone missing over the years. So it was quite um, a messy situation and the poor old claims officers at the BLF and the other building unions were flat out trying to look after uh, people's genuine entitlements to portable uh, portable long service leave. Well, the other issue, of course, was that if you had a gap of more than three months, you lost lost it. Now, over over the journey, of course, that situation has been improved, as has the quantum. You now get uh, 13 weeks after 10 years, Uh, and that took a long time coming. That's right. We had to have 30 30 years. Many delegations to... uh, to the state governments over the uh, over the years through the building industry group of unions to try and get that down from uh, 15 to uh, 13, and then we even got it down to seven. You can get partial. Yep. Pro rata. Yep. Pro rata. And uh, but the but keeping the records was fundamental to the, to making the scheme work, and uh, it was very problematic for a lot of people. And uh, in personal experience, I lost it a few times. So did I. <laughs> yes, and uh, let's just say that. People these days, with computerisation and all the rest of it and the ability to check things, uh, and also enforcement, because the one good thing that the Portable Long Service Leave Board did was it actually prosecuted employers for failing to carry out their obligations under state law. That's right. So a lot of people are running around now getting uh, entitlements, which uh, a lot of people fought for, did a lot of time for, but uh, never got the full benefit of. No, it was quite a struggle to establish it. The, the debate with the uh, government to get the pro rata brought in from 15 to 10 to 7 over a, period, a long period of time, as you say, was based on the fact that most building workers were uh, transitional. They were going from job to job and all that sort of stuff, and we had a situation where, as you know, after three months you could have lost it, where we had to negotiate that you could have a gap of up to two years before you lost it. Uh, to to, to, uh, make sure that people didn't lose their entitlements. And, of course, that is a uh, piece of state legislation and has been followed by other states around the country. Of course, it doesn't apply to redundancy and uh, doesn't apply to uh, superannuation in quite the same way because the ability to prosecute 
employers for failing to carry out their legal obligations doesn't exist under either of those two schemes. No, it's, it's, it's really got to be managed uh, industrially through the industrial parties, be it the building unions and, uh, and the employers and also the schemes themselves. So, so you fast-forwarded now to superannuation and, um, and redundancy. And in Victoria, we've got Incolink and we've got uh, CBUS uh, nationally. But there's a requirement for... They keep putting the onus on individual workers to uh, monitor if the employer is paying into redundancy and superannuation. But really, um, we need a situation where the schemes can actually police what's happening on behalf of, the, of, of individual workers because they're missing out on a lot of super and a lot of redundancy in some of the uh, jobs and the contracting situations that workers are still in today. Yes, indeed. And people over the years have missed out on an awful lot. A lot, a lot of... And superannuation, for instance... And not just super and redundancy. I know, but superannuation is actually has a unit that's policed by the federal government. It's a unit inside the Australian Tax Office. But it's only got about three people and a dog working in it, uh, looking after everyone's super across many industries. And as we go on uh, through the 70s, there were campaigns to do a whole lot of things. And how did you fit into all the campaigns that were run uh, through into the early 80s because you became an organiser with the BLF in the late 70s. You remember which year? Yeah, 79. 79. Um, I filled in temporarily and then became full-time in 80. Now, that was also the period of the uh, government uh, being led by Malcolm Fraser implementing a wage freeze because we we had through the 70s and the early 80s, a couple of major recessions. And then again, of course, in 1990, we had another one. But in those days, recessions were quite the regular thing. There was a, a boom and a bust, and the industry was very much uh, influenced by that, which, of course, as we just referred to before, there was a, an effect on people's accumulation of portable sick leave. There was no way known you couldn't avoid a, three, a three-month gap there were periods of time where work was just non-existent for uh, anything up to 12 months. Mm, that's true. But, but the, the key issues I recall, Ralph, for in the late 70s before I started working for the union were shorter hours, 36, 35. That was uh, a constant. And the other one was um, site allowances, always trying to get an extra quid for the workers on site, so you know the Rialto with Grocon or the Knox Shopping Centre or whatever, we actually started having successes in getting a, an extra side allowance of so many cents per hour added to their wages uh, by consolidating some of the um, the uh, issues in the award uh, that you could claim, like wet underfoot or um, dust money or whatever. You know all these mm. sorts of bits and pieces that you could actually get if you actually applied for it, but by consolidating them. Uh, into a, a, a constant side allowance per hour it was one of our main pushes that we did in the late 70s. And this was, of course, part of the, what we should say, the work of the Building Industry Group of Unions. Oh, yes, yes. Um, the, the, the BLF led the charge on a few things, uh, the BWIU, the ASCNJ, the plumbers, the electricians, all had different little emphasis on things. There's no doubt about that, but through the... Trade Hall's Building Industry Group of Unions, uh, which I was a BLF delegate uh, eventually for some time. A lot of these things uh, became, 
uh, we, we had a lot of successes in, in some of the bigger sites in particular when we worked together. Yep. You've mentioned a few unions uh, in the answer to that question. Can you remember all of them? Because um, qu- there were quite a few. When I started uh, being on the BIG for the BLF in uh, 1980 or 81, there was at least 13, I think. Let me have a go. Yep. Slaters and tilers, solid plasterers, fibrous plasterers, uh, ASC and J, yep. carpenters, BWIU, FEDFA, BLF, Painters Union, Plumbers Union, ETU, and maybe the metal workers on the fringe. What about the brickies? Oh, I forgot about the brickies. <laughs> Given that in those days, before the advent of precast, most labourers actually work for brickies. That's true. That's Either true. doing brick or block work. Yeah, well, I've got 10 out of 11. You didn't do too bad. <laughs> Most people would not know who the hell those organisations were. No. But, in fact, a lot of them had uh, ancestries that go back all the way to the 19th century. That's right. When the building trades first got organised in Melbourne during and immediately after the gold rush. Because there was never so much work in this town as there was then up till quite recently. Yeah, stonemasons in particular. Yes, yeah, stonemasons, another one I forgot myself given that's where my family uh, came into the picture all those years ago. Now, in terms of the BIG, it still exists today and it's obviously a lot smaller group than is the case now, or was the case then. How did the BIG operate? You were the BLF delegate at one point and then later on... After 88, when I went to Trade Tool, I became the convener of the BIG itself. Yeah, Yeah. so I've been involved with it for over 30 years, the building industry group. So... How was it set up, why was it set up, and how did it operate? Well, I've got to go back to some, uh, at least one story that um, the, uh, uh, Normie Wallace, the uh, now deceased uh, Assistant Secretary of the BLF, told me that the building industry group of unions sort of uh, started having more of a formal approach to things back in the 1956 when they were preparing for the Olympic Games, but the, the building work around that. And then there was a pretty crude sort of BIA, a building industry agreement that came out of that, uh, that the uh, unions, the building unions back then collectively owned and, and negotiated with the employers at the time. So from that period on, my knowledge then uh, through Normie Wallace, he kept saying that the building unions met collectively. And um, by the time I got there in 1980, it was formalised where it met every Thursday morning at 8 o'clock at Trade Tour. And that had been going on for some considerable time before that with uh, Nick Moore, who was the, um, the, uh, the convener th- from, uh, before he went, uh, when he went to Trade Tour from the BWIU. He was the convener of the, uh, of the BIG back then. And then Peter Parkinson took over for a year or so, and then I took over after that. So it's been alive for many, many years, the BIG, and it's been, to me... Uh, one of the more success stories for unionism per se in Victoria is when they work collectively, all of those unions, right down to the four or five that are left now, um, they have a far bigger impact than on their own. Now, of course, the uh, problem became uh, one of working together, given that there had been a, let's say, a civil war going on between the ASC and J and the BWIU ever since the... Uh, late 40s when uh, the leadership of the BWIU uh, decided to uh, actually become the BWIU because pre- prior to that they'd been the ASC&J. That's correct. And they uh, 
deregistered uh, the ASC and J and uh, basically left it sitting there on the shelf and along came the uh, Catholic Action uh, Group. National Civic Council. The National Civic Council, or the movement as it was then known, led by Bob Santa Maria, who then grabbed the name and then went into competition with the militant leadership of what became the BWIU. Yeah, the Australian, the Australian Society of uh, Carpenters and Joiners, the ASC and J, as you say, got picked up by them and they recreated it and, and then had organisers going out trying to appeal to the more conservative side of workers um, in terms of uh, the militant activity of the BWIU at the time. And, of course, the BWIU was probably the most uh, numerous and most powerful in New South Wales and they acquired uh, through amalgamation a whole lot of other tradesmen like stonemasons and uh, some of the smaller union, state-based unions around the country and they built a major union which was part of the militant uh, leadership on, in the industry but it was also deregistered. Yeah. Deregistered for a very long time which brings us to the deregistration of the BLF in the 1980s. <laughs> yes. And uh, you would think someone who had been deregistered themselves uh, for so long and who was supported by other unions to keep going might have had a slightly different attitude to the BLF, but let's just say that wasn't the case. Well, especially since the, um, it was the conservative employers and governments of the time that uh, isolated the BWIU for being a, uh, an effective progressive left-wing union, uh, working harder on behalf of uh, building workers that they represented. And the BLF was the same. The BLF was a, a militant uh, union that had already been uh, taken out in uh, first deregion in 1974-76. Um, but then along come the 80s and um, the building industry was in turmoil. And um, the, the irony of it was that uh, Malcolm Fraser again, along with the Liberal State Government under Thompson, called a Royal Commission. And at the same time, the employers ran a parallel thing in the federal court over uh, industrial activity of the BLF on sites and in terms of chasing site allowances and shorter hours and all the rest of it. So that double whammy came along and by 1975, 85, 86, deregistration was locked in and um, the BLF was deregistered. But then the other unions that you correctly referred to, one of them in particular, but all the other unions, to be honest, uh, turned uh, a blind eye while um, the state government of the time, a Labor government, Kane and, and Crabb, drew up legislation to disperse the BLF membership amongst the other unions. And used the police to enforce it. Totally. Raided building sites and all the rest of it. Yep. Rested, had, had rested organisers, BLF organisers and BLF shop stewards were all arrested. And now we're getting a flavour of lots of turmoil. 80s, very turmoil. Tumultuous. Tumultuous, traumatic, whatever. But in terms of the politics of deregistration, how much of that came out of political conflict on the left between the leadership of the, of the BWIU and the BLF and how much came out of the downturns in the industry which made it very, very difficult to predict what was going to happen to you in terms of work and very difficult probably for a lot of employers to work out where they were going to be. Most employers might belong to an employer organisation but 
the company comes first, second and third for most of them and they worry about what, where that's going to go because that's what goes in their pocket. Well, how, uh, how, was there a combination so of look, the two I think, things? I, I, think you, I think you're right. I think um, all those broader industry economic forces were at play. Uh, the, the work level, uh, definitely from the employer point of view, all they cared about was uh, what was happening to them in terms of their projects and their profits and the rest of it. So they cooperated with both the federal and state governments in formulating the deregistration of the BLF. Uh, they went along with it. They cooperated with the carve-up of BLF members in distributing them to other unions, in particular to the BWIU. So all those things uh, came to the fore and uh, they were able to exploit that wider economic political nexus, if you like, that was happening to successfully deregister the BLF and um, divvy it up, which uh, led to a lot more turmoil for a number of years because there was a lot of loyal builders, labourers, still quite rightly deserved their own union. Now, of course, we are in the CFMEU. Yes. And uh, what I sort of have in the back of my mind is I look at how much work there is and how many people are working in the industry and then I think back to how many people worked in the industry back then. Back in, let's just say, the mid-'80s. But you're not just talking about how many people work in it, you're talking about also the coverage. Because hmm. uh, you've, you've touched on one of my little pet issues because when I was convener of the BIG for quite a long time or a part of it and you had up to 10, 12 unions, the membership of all of those unions... So, for instance, I'll give you one example. So the Painters Union had 5,000 members. How many painters are now in the CFMEU? That's, that's correct. If you look at the bricklayers, they had 4,000 members. Uh, how many bricklayers are in the CFMEU? You know, plasterers, all of them, all had enough, thousands enough members per union to actually carry a leadership and organisation base that could go out and organise. Mm. So um, the amalgamation process that also happened during the 80s in particular, led by the ACTU when they went off to Sweden and, and come back with all these plans and whatever. Uh, I blame them for this rush to amalgamation per se. Now, to me, there's a difference, Ralph, between industry unionism and opportunist unionism. And a, and a lot of unions started amalgamating not on industry basis so much as political basis. About Correct. Uh, so if you're a right wing, that will a group of right-wing unions are amalgamating. If you're right, left-wing, you did, you know, or you're progressive or whatever. You know, it's, yeah. So I'm, um, I'm quite frustrated by the frustra- uh, by the uh, amalgamation process that I witnessed in the 80s and 90s, um, and I didn't think it did. In particular, when you come back to our industry, the building union, the building industry, I think um, amalgamation didn't do us that good. We didn't, we didn't use it properly enough to consolidate our coverage, if you like, of all of those trades. So let me put two things to you. One, not only did we lose membership, but did we also, because unions did operate separately, did we also lose activists? Because if you had ten unions, you had to have ten groups of activists. And now we've got one union with one group of activists. Is the same... Consequence there in your mind? Well, I, I think it follows. I think that point follows from what I'm saying about uh, how the amalgamation process uh, lessened our overall coverage of the industry. Right. 
and therefore by definition I think it follows that we also lost that uh, ability to have activists in those specific areas that we that were taken over. Mm. So yes, I think that's 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 a truism. So, so you you would also include in a deteriorated union situation the fact that people once upon a time looked after a particular skill or a particular trade. Have we lost some of that ability to talk to the people who still perform that work? Well, I think I think again that follows again from what we've just just talked about before. So, for instance, let's take the painters' union. Yep. So the painters' union had three or four organisers who could talk to painters and talk about their issues, painters' issues in particular. About not not even though there's there were general campaigns that they were brought into, like shorter hours or side allowances or, or safety or whatever. Painters still had their own issues that they wanted uh, their specific union to look into with, with their specific employer or employer base. So if you if you've got uh, a situation now that someone doesn't know much about, if it goes up to a painter and says to him or her, you know what's your, what's your issues, but you you're not really au fait with the industry, then you know there's going to be a disconnect in the conversation. Now, as an alternative explanation to the amalgamation effect uh, on membership, how much has technological changed? How much has different building processes and different building products also reduced the number of people in the industry? Well, we were, we were always witnessing uh, that, that overlay of technological change and, and different work methods. We're always, we're always witnessing that from the, right through from the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. It was always happening. But did we keep our eye on that um, when, we were, when we were doing all the other hassles we were having in the 80s and 90s? Were we watching what, what it meant in terms of uh, employment opportunities or coverage? All those things, um, I think, went to by the by rather than where, where if you had your own individual union, painters, bricklayers or whatever... Uh, looking at the uh, the changes, for instance, I remember the bricklayers <laughs> union had a big big issue when they started bringing in um, prefab brickwork that you could actually uh, lift it up by up by a crane and fix it onto a bit of a concrete framework of a building, but it looked like brick, but it was it was all prefabbed rather than you laid the bricks with bricklayers, and that was one of their biggest campaigns before they uh, got swallowed up. And yet they uh, built their own building in Barry Street out of that very product. <laughs> I think they were claiming coverage for it, <laughs> rather, rather, rather than uh, uh, riggers and dogmen uh, lifting it into place. Well, the problem, of course, was that uh, the brickies uh, disintegrated. They tried to amalgamate with the AWU, didn't quite work, and uh, their membership deserted to the CFMEU. That's right. But they then... Uh, got left with a building that didn't go up very cheaply and uh, it bankrupted them. Yeah, well, well, they tried the, the, the four unions little group, remember, at one stage? Yep. That didn't work with the fibrous plasters, solid plasters and the slaters and tilers. Yeah. So there's a lot of change going on in the industry before we get to the CFMEU. In your memory and in your evaluation... Right through that period from when you first came into the industry, digging holes in uh, Gladstone in Queensland, right through to becoming the industrial officer covering the BIG at Trades Hall, what do you think 
were the good things in the industry? What were the bad things in the industry? What has improved? What have we lost? Has there been a lot of huffing and puffing that, uh, in some areas for very little change? No, I think, that, I think we had some successes uh, in terms of uh, Oc Health and Safety. Oc Health and Safety was a constant in the 70s, 80s and 90s when I was involved in the industry, especially in the 70s. Um, getting people to wear hard hats in the 70s was the biggest campaign uh, run by the building unions and the BLF were particularly good at um, pushing the, the uh, hard hats. Uh, that took a long time. That took many years to get the, the fact that you had to wear a hard hat. A lot of, in the 70s, a lot of jobs didn't wear hard hats. You had that success of the um, portable uh, long-service leave that, that, uh, that came out of the 70s. I think the, the negative that was a constant for me, um, and maybe because I was sitting back a little bit from the trades hall position later, because I was pretty good at demarcations uh, when I was with the BLF, I must admit, the BLF, was, the BLF was always right. Yeah, yeah that's right. That's right. Uh, but uh, I think demarcations in the industry were very destructive. Um, I don't know the answer to that because coverage is coverage, but there was sometimes a lot of energy put into demarcations that could have been put into elsewhere. So to me that was always a negative. Yes, and uh, probably political as well as employer figures uh, made the most of that. Well, there's no doubt, um, and depending on uh, which union was involved in the, in, the, in the dispute, the employers played off unions over demarcations all the time. And, and, and in fact, I think in some cases provoked them so that um, you know they could get their own way with whatever union they would prefer at the time. Can I throw two words into that thought bubble? Scissor lifts. That was a very destructive demarcation, Ralph, uh, as you know, and by then I was working for the BLF. Um, scissor lifts uh, were in the middle of fighting deregistration, the start of deregistration and the, and the attacks by the conservatives and the employers. Uh, the BLF said they covered all scissor lifts. That provoked even the most friendly of unions that we had at the time, the plumbers union, the electricians, all the sorts of progressive unions, um, into a reaction to that. And we really didn't need that dispute at that time. But we had it. We had it. And it was nasty. And uh, probably soured uh, relations, if not on a grand scale, certainly on a personal level for a lot of people. Are there any other matters which also caused grief at the site level that maybe... uh, if we look back on it now, was not the best thing that was ever done or was, in fact, imposed upon us? Well, um, uh, during the fight for, against deregistration, um, a lot of disputes were uh, carried out by the BLF and its officials and shop stewards that caused a lot of grief with the other unions and the other workers on site. Mm. It used to be an old um, lefty slogan, uh, unite the many to defeat the few. I think that that motto uh, got thrown out the window during some of the nasty disputes that happened in the 80s. Yeah. There's, there's another aspect to it that maybe is worth um, people knowing about. Not everyone probably might have known about it back then so much, but on the political level, all the, the building unions were all party, most of them were parties to the Australian Labor Party mm-hmm. and used to go to ALP state conferences, delegations. You and I did a, a bit of that, Ralph. And, um, just a bit. Just a bit. 
And, of course, we'd go there quite rightly with um, a position that um, deregistration of unions is uh, anti-worker, uh, anti-union movement, and we, we really need the ALP uh, political machinery to convince the state ALP and the federal, and the federal um, ALP to back off on deregistering a union, per se. Uh, and all of those other skirmishes that we just mentioned before and all the bad blood that uh, used to happen, there was a little bit of uh, turning your back on the BLF issue at those important uh, political discussions at the ALP conferences where we really needed political support. And we were asking the same people for that political support that we couldn't, uh, that we were uh, treating so badly back on the site. So it became uh, quite uh, problematic for people like you and me and others to uh, argue for full political support for the BLF uh, when people in the room were remembering what happened the, the week before. Right. Well, we're going to get on to a particular topic in a second, but I'm going to just do the little promo here of the industry on Community Radio 3CR and we've got to the stage where we get maybe a little bit scratchy because we're going to talk about the book. (laughs) Now come on, we can all sort of have a bit of a giggle about it now but at the time it was controversial and uh, a lot of people have gone since then. And so there aren't too many people, other than your good self, who can actually talk in some detail about uh, the book. But it is a moment in the history of the industry which um, certainly was leapt upon by many people, attacked by many people. And if we look back now, and I'll let you explain what the book was, how it came about and all the rest. But if we look back, was it the best idea you ever had? <laughs> and what, and, 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 you know, quite apart from motivation and that, at the end of the conversation, have we actually progressed things? Because a lot of people talk about the BLF like it was some organisation which was... Uh, if you were a Christian on the right hand of God, and if you're a Maoist, you were absolutely uh, leading the masses. Um, one of the, you, you, I'll go to your question about was it one of the best ideas I've ever had. Um, um, I don't regret doing the book. I do not regret doing it. I might have had uh, I, the, the, the timing issue might be another. Just. Tell, us the, tell the listeners but, the name uh, yeah, of the uh, book, right, I wrote a book and what it was about. I wrote a book. Uh, no, 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 let's do the timing right. So the deregistration had happened, yep. 86, and the carve-up of uh, the BLF had been going on for a number of years. I went to Trades Hall in 1988, and by 1990 I was still watching the remnants of the skirmishing and the bitterness of the post-deregistration period in the Victorian building industry in particular. You mean the Civil War? Civil War that was on. So um, I I had a view that, and I argued this at ALP conferences and everything, that the builders' labourer always deserved their own union and we should always still have our own union, as far as I'm concerned. But So I didn't like the idea that the BLF had been deregistered and I didn't like the idea that our membership was being carved up. 
but I wanted to say why I thought it happened, why the deregistration happened. And I, my argument in the book, I don't want to go into every single thing, but my argument in the book was essentially this, that the deregistration of the BLF was unnecessary and could have been prevented, could have been prevented, uh, but the leader, the leadership of the, uh, the of the Victorian BLF were determined to get the post Royal Commission charges against Norm Gallagher lifted by the Kane Labor government, and and, and called on um, the ACTU and the federal and state governments to do something about the charges that Norm Gallagher was facing over the Royal Commission. Uh, he insisted that we go and have that civil war over, the, over, um, over those charges, which then led to Kane and Hawke, in connivance with the employers and some of the other unions, to be honest, to deregister the BLF and the ACTU as well. I was at meetings, and the book uh, covers some of this, I was at meetings with, the, uh, with uh, government representatives and with the ACTU in particular, where they promised... In fact, in fact you were a member of the ACTU uh, executive eventually. Well, at, at, at the time, at the time I was, yes, on the executive. Um, the, um, the, the, I, I, I witnessed those discussions um, between the BLF and, and Kelty and Co, where they said we will get... Hawk and Kane to back off on deregistration if you lift your industrial campaign against them but you have to wear your chances in court. Gallagher did not want to go to court and I know why but anyway he, wanted, he didn't want to go to court and he insisted on keeping going with the industrial campaign to get the charges dropped. Now I was at meetings where at least three times they pleaded with him, cop the court cases, because they were alive, they were running. You couldn't stop them, they were running. So if Kane even tried to uh, call off the court case, he, he would have fallen as uh, Premier. And if, 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 if Hawke had tried to do anything, the same would have happened to him. So I thought, and I argued this with Norm to himself, I didn't do anything behind his back, I said, we should cop the deal. We should save the union. And... You, you, you keep going on with your court cases and we'll back you all the way with the court cases. He didn't do it. So they deregistered the union. And my book is about the unnecessary deregistration of the BLF. That's what the theme of it is. Well, was it your best idea? Only on the timing. <laughs> but I don't regret writing it, Ralph. No, no, I, okay. I'm, I don't write... Because I think the truth had to come out because we were... We, and by the way, I wrote some of the propaganda during the, during the, during the 80s oh. for the BLF. I wrote some of the propaganda. And the, the line we had was that we were being deregistered and threatened with deregistration because we were a militant union. That wasn't the only reason. The ACTU and the governments would have handled us continuing on as a militant union if we stopped our campaign on behalf of Normie. That was the difference. And that's the point that we, we were just pretending it was about being, de, uh, being a militant union. Everyone knew. Everyone knew what the real reason was. Now, timing is everything. <laughs> yes. And in the subsequent 30 years, 
a lot of people who were partisan in that very debate. As I said earlier, not many of them are around. But it still digs deep. Mm. I mean, you have a position and uh, other people perhaps uh, in a more reflective position, i.e. not partisan, uh, might be able to come to some conclusion about that. And there are people who still believe that Norm Gallagher was wronged and he should have been defended at any price. Others say, well, we're on the receiving end, our backs were to the wall, you have to do what you have to do. Just stop for a minute. There are two views, and I'm not going to say who's right and who's wrong, certainly not in this sort of uh, discussion, but what was the effect, and this is what is really in my head, what was the effect overall on builders' labourers and the industry? The effect of what, sorry? What was the effect? You know, when it comes to uh, the whole deregistration, the whole 80s, for, for those who lived through it, you can't forget it. Oh, I can't, I've never forgotten it ever. For people who never experienced it or only heard about it, you know, it can get mythologised and it can get very unreal. My concern is to get people's views on the effect it had on rank and file, builders, labourers and on the industry. And I've put it to people in discussion over the years that my problem really was the number of people whose working lives were fucked basically, by that whole process. People who could not work for years, people who went on to picket lines because that's the only thing that was open to them, pick up a few bucks a week, turn it up to a picket line. And at the same time, the ability of unions to organise and to defend the trade that they uh, did was actually undermined the ability of unions to talk to people was undermined. It to my mind, we lost 10 years. And that's, I think, demonstrated by the fact that I have a picture <coughs> of a meeting at Trades Hall with Ken Stone, Bruno Grollo, Norm Gallagher, Kevin Casey, all signing an agreement just before D-Reg, which is an agreement for 36 hours. That was the first step for everybody in the industry to get 36-hour, nine-day fortnight. And what sits in my head, and I'm not saying I've got the answers, but what sits in my head is it took from 86 to 2000 before we got the shorter hours that we actually had agreed with the industry, the undertakings that were given all those years before. Well, that may, that may come in there on a couple of points. You're correct, and I remember that meeting, very well. I think I was sitting in the background watching from, from the... You didn't make the picture, but no, don't yeah, worry. No, I don't worry. Maybe <laughs> I didn't want to make the picture. But the, part of that agreement with Ken Stone involved, the ACT, the Trades Hall and, uh, and the other unions and all that involved, was that the BLF would then go out and implement this industrially, but all the bans had to be lifted, Ralph. He lifted them for a week. 
He used the meeting, he went off and got Kelty to again go and see Crab or Kane or whoever and said, I've just signed this deal. It had publicity in the papers. I'm willing to do this, but you've got to fix up the big problem. I was involved in that discussion. Mm. He didn't get the answer he wanted. So that whole thing blew up because... So that's why you had to wait those bloody 20 years, Ralph. wasn't 20, but... Well, whatever, whatever. But more, more, more importantly... About, the, tw- about 12 to 14. But more importantly, I want to go back again about the turmoil of, um, of the 80s and in particular um, uh, how hard builders' labourers did it from, from D-Reg onwards for, for that five or six years before amalgamation was discussed. If we'd saved the union from deregistration, it would have enhanced the builders' labourers' position in the amalgamation talks down the track that created the CFMEU would have been a more useful situation for where builders' labourers would have been represented rather than underrepresented in the new structure. We would have come back from a position of a fully-fledged affiliated union and it would have made more sense on on the old dream of having industry-wide unionism, you know, one union... Per industry, because the BLF and the and the, and the and the BWIU and all that made sense, unlike some of the other amalgamations that Kelty and the ACTU dreamed up. So and, we would, we would and, and could I interject and say what we ended up with with the CFMEU? Yeah, yeah, but we would have, but we would have had a, a bigger and better CFMEU rather than five years of remnants of the of the of the destruction of the BLF at, in '86. It would have empowered us to be a lot more, not only in Victoria, but nationally, because they used what happened in Victoria, the the leadership of the of the BWIU in Sydney, to really lessen what was able to be achieved with amalgamations with the other state BLFs. But of course, rank and file building workers and builders labourers in particular got uh, basically a bad deal right through till the CFMEU actually underwent in its construction division a major change in the early 90s. The leadership was changed. The BLF uh, in the lesser states, uh, the smaller states, I shouldn't say lesser, but smaller states like uh, New South Wales, sorry, not New South Wales, South Australia, West Australia, Queensland, Tasmania, became into the CFMEU and came in with a deal basically to recognise particularly Victoria. New South Wales was always a problem even in that process. But we actually got back to something which was a proper industry base where labourers were recognised as being a huge component of the industry and not, and not an add-on and uh, the issue of multi-skilling and all the rest of it where tradesmen were to do uh, labourers' work and all the rest of it, which was so popular in uh, the ACTU and other areas in the 80s, uh, was finally stopped. How all-encompassing that was is another matter, but uh, at least the, the, the general move was stopped. Is that a reasonable summary of where we were in the early 90s and was that the turning point? So, so we're talking about we're now talking about the creation of the CFMEU. Um, 
which I fully supported. Um, I, I still argue, uh, I, I still think a, a number of people were able to get, make the best of whatever we could with the creations of CFMEU and get recognition for builders' labourers in the post-CFMEU creation. But I still say that the 80s, the six or seven years in the 80s of chaos in Victoria undermined our ability to even get a better deal. Mm. Now, we might just uh, at this point just shift the emphasis a little bit away from the turmoil and the changes, good and bad, that took place right through that period. In terms of the industry at the point where the CFMEU became <coughs> a viable option for builders, labourers and for the industry as a whole, and I'll just try and personalise it to make it simple for some people. John Cummins became the secretary of the Victorian branch of the BLF and he and the remaining BLF branches, which were state registered in West Australia, Queensland, etc., signed on to the CFMEU. There were elections. Martin Kingham took over as secretary and eventually John Cummins became the president of the Victorian branch in the mid-90s. Now, at that point in time, you were at Trades Hall. You were looking after the BIG. What was the thinking of the industry parties at that point in time? Where were the unions? Where were the employers? What happened next? The big, the big thing that happened then was, uh, was that the, um, the industry got down to tax about the Victorian Building Industry Agreement, the Green Book. And, summing, and, and, and pulling all the issues together that were all, all over the place, be it the site allowance regime, health and safety, recognising that um, a portable long service leave had to be looked after, the new redundancy scheme that was set up originally in 89, 90, Inco was recognised in the, in, the, in the VBIA, the, the building unions worked with the state Labor government at the, of uh, um, with Monica Gould and all the rest of them got the um, the employers, the state government and all the building unions to sign on to the VBIA to move forward into the 90s with the Victorian Building History Agreement. So a lot of people don't understand the Green Book. <laughs> yeah, I know. And uh, <coughs> there's a lot of things said about the Green Book and unfortunately it disappeared in 2005 with the uh, Howard government's... Uh, legislation which made it impossible for the master builders and for the master builders at the time very happy to be impossible That's right. uh, to get out of an obligation that their members had whether or not they had a separate agreement with the union if they were working under the award they also copped the green book and the green book set industry standards as you've just outlined mm. it fitted in your top pocket it was a nice little uh, small book, had all the stuff in front of you and together with the, uh, the Builders Labourers Award and the award for the building trades, same size, fit in your top pocket and you were well resourced in any arguments with the boss. Now, 
that's disappeared and we at the same time as we were building or rebuilding and adding to the Victorian Building Industry Agreement, we were also having foisted upon us by the Keating government, Keating Labor government, the EBA system. Now, your thoughts on the interreaction between the changes to the award, the downgrading of the award, the, the emphasis on enterprise bargaining agreements, and the VBIA. What do you reckon was going on there? What was positive, what wasn't? Well, I'm going to show my bias. Um, yeah, that's fine. <coughs> that's what this is about. Uh, as convener of the BIG and, uh, and, and, and working to get the VBIA up, uh, and there was about seven versions of it over a decade period, um, to get it up through the state government and through the employers at the time, we were coming off the back of the amalgamation of the, uh, this, the creation of the CFMEU and also put, trying to put behind us what happened in the 80s. That was the philosophical thing, if you like, about why the VBIA was agreed to initially by the employers and by the state government and also the creation of IncoLink. Um, <clears throat> so all of that was important stuff. And the Green Book became, we called it a Bible, we called it all sorts of nicknames and, and people used to carry around in their pockets and so on. Now, um, my recollection is that we kept going with the VBIA to version 7 or 8, whatever it was, but it was under immense pressure because of the Enterprise Bargaining Agreement legislation that Keating had created a few years earlier and the employers were starting to use that elsewhere. The major employer bodies were using it in other industries and the uh, Conservative governments really wanted to target industry-wide bargaining in the building industry, but also on the waterfront. I think they named the meat industry and a couple of other industries that they particularly targeted, Reith and Howard targeted. So the VBIA was a success story that lasted longer than they wanted it to, the Conservatives and the employers. But they snuck up on it, and I think the last VBIA uh, was lucky to be signed. Uh, the pressure from the employers in particular and the government was we wanted enterprise bargaining in the building, and they wanted it in the building industry. I think it snuck through, and it became the basis, and this is what um, union officials argued, that they took the, v, the, um, the VBIA and started rede redefining uh, EBA's material by absorbing the key aspects of the VBIA in it and there was lots of the debates amongst the building unions at the BIG about what could be left out, what could be left in because there was pressure on making sure that the EBA's came in uh, company by company uh, and they wanted to lessen the restrictions and the imposts that the Green Book had given them for nearly a decade. So that went on for a, um, a year or two until the EBAs took over and the Green Book was put to bed. Yes, and incorporated into the EBA. And now, what, 17 years later, how many people have EBAs? I mean, the EBA you get nowadays is about an inch thick can't fit in your back pocket even if you reduced it to uh, you know, microscopic size. But if you don't have an EBA with your employer, 
there is no obligation for a lot of that stuff, which was part of the Victorian building industry agreement. WorkSafe, for example, is supposed to enforce uh, amenities on site and the conditions that those amenities have to be maintained at in terms of cleaning, air conditioning, all that sort of stuff. And that was all detailed in the Green Book. In the Green Book. Now it's in the EBA. And there was a period, I put it to you, that between 2005 and 2016, a majority of employers, both builders and subcontractors, had an enterprise bargaining agreement and were legally bound by the old VBIA, even though it was incorporated into Mm. the agreement, it was the old VBIA. Since then, conservative governments since basically 2013, have kept changing the law to the point where the EBA is almost a six-month to 12-month process for a lot of people from the original negotiations of industry standards right through to getting the majority of companies signed up to the new agreement. There is this period of time which has got longer and longer. It's got harder and harder. Less people both employers and employees, understand it. And my suggestion to you, and I'd like your response, is maybe a mistake was made in 2005. Perhaps we should have found another way to have a VBIA because it applied to people who might be members of the union and whose employer might be part of the industry and members of the master builders or the master plumbers or something, but who did not have an agreement with the union. I mean, EBAs in the old days was only the majors who had those sort of agreements. But there was still coverage between the award and the Victorian building industry agreement. A bigger section of the industry enjoyed the benefits of the union than is perhaps the case now. Well, yeah, and it goes back to the, the... the VBIA, when it was signed by the master builders, the master plumbers, the, the government and all the unions, the Green Book, you could go all the way out to Lilydale and there'd be a master builder building a school extension. Yep. There'd be five or six workers on it, maybe even ten. Um, you only had to show the Green Book and that the Master Builders Association was a signature and that applied to that site. That's right. The debate that I referred to earlier, uh, when, we, when, there was a, when there was the push to change over from the VBIA to enterprise bargaining agreements after, the, after, the, after a decade, was that <coughs> along the lines that the employers will always eventually want um, the freedom to have an EBA or not, and they pushed the federal government to legislate that. that you didn't have to have one. You could have one if you wanted one. And, of course, that's what you were referring to earlier. The, uh, the, time, the time to negotiate one is, could be endless because if the employer doesn't want to sign it, um, they don't have to. And if you do anything about it, you're breaking the law. If you have, have a dispute over it, you're breaking the law. You can have meetings about it and have you have to have permission to have a meeting about it. And you can have a protected action application. Yeah. So you've got to fight your way through the bureaucracy, even get to the point of having an argument with the boss. That's right. Just go, it's, it's very complicated. And, uh, 
And they've got what they wanted after they finally convinced the unions to go from only the VBIA and and their backup awards to enterprise bargaining. Once you went in, once you went down that uh, rabbit hole, now some of the unions quite rightly at the time argued we've got enough industrial muscle around the place to hold everyone to the EBA, and it's going to have the, the key parts of the VBIA in it. But eventually, um, the uh, industry mood changes, the politics of the the rights of workers and, and legislation changes, and all of a sudden that industrial muscle that you could just say you've got to have one is gone, and you've got to have all these bureaucratic hoops to jump through. So um, they got what they wanted. They just took longer than they expected, that's all. A bit like the Ukrainian army, we're putting up a good fight over the years despite uh, outstanding uh, resources on the other side, but... So far, we've been ground down and maybe the Ukrainians haven't. Yeah, well, good luck to them. If we look at where the industry is today, the standards are unsurpassed in terms of wages, in terms of conditions, in terms of benefits to employees. I mean, when you think about the calendar, the RDOs, the redundancy, I mean, the redundancy now is 140 bucks a week. Yeah, but if you are unemployed, you don't have to go on the rock and roll straight up, like in the old days. Not that you can even get it that easily, but there is a massive change, but that has not been equal across the industry. Well, that's where I was going to come to. It's the breadth of, the, of those um, benefits and uh, conditions is really the issue for the industry today, isn't it? How, how, how widespread, like the VBIA was in the 90s, how widespread is now those conditions in, in, the, in the modern EBA that you've been able to get with some of the key employers? How far does it reach? How far does redundancy payments reach? And also, in my mind, is an additional problem. That is the employers are now backed up by the federal, uh, successive federal governments, Liberal and Labor, yes. whereby the penalties imposed on any union that has a go and doesn't put up with having to wait 12 months or more to negotiate an agreement, you know, factory by factory, plant by plant, site by site, those penalties, uh, particularly on the building unions, has changed the uh, delicate balance in the industry. Once upon a time you pushed, and if the uh, economic circumstances were good, you got some benefits. And when the economic circumstances uh, went downhill, the bosses would push back. But there was an area of conflict around wages in particular, but also conditions where you could come to some kind of deal. Now, you're facing millions of dollars in fines for taking any action. Has the world changed from when Clary O'Shea went to jail in 1969 and the whole industry and industries across the board had to take a general strike to actually end that sort of penalising of unions for doing their job? Well, I think you could argue that we've come full circle. Um, the... the um 
Menzies government brought in all those industrial uh, laws that Clary O'Shea's actions in 69 challenged yes. and broke the back of it and opened up a bit for the union movement in the 70s and 80s to pursue a little bit more wages and conditions. But, but in the 50s and 60s, those building, those, uh, those, the union movement was under a lot of threat from uh, his in- industrial relations laws. Mm. So we've come back full cycle. We had work choices experiment, which we fought against. Successfully? For about five minutes. And then uh, Gillard and Rudd got in and gave us work choices light, 80% of it, to the extent that when we got to 2013, Abbott said, I'm happy with the uh, uh, Rudd and Gillard legislation. I'm not changing it at all. It's good enough for me. And what do you reckon um, Albanese, if he gets in, is going to do? Well, that's the interesting question uh, because when wages for the vast majority of people, and that includes a lot of people in the building and construction industry, uh, are put in a situation where they're going to take industrial action to get just a pay rise to keep up with inflation. Mm. And it was easy enough when inflation wasn't that bad, but now it's starting to get out of hand. And he restricts the... uh, position of the party to just the lowest paid, not the people who then get a, uh, a level of increase based on their relativities. The relativity argument is going to disappear completely. So we're going to have maybe people at the bottom pushed up, as they should be, a, a whole dollar an hour. Wow. Uh, and then you're going to have people who have always been the basic rate plus a percentage, who are going to be held. So they're going to lose. Industrial relations in this country need some change. But I don't think we're going to achieve it. But we could talk about it. And what do you think is the immediate future? Labor government, no Labor government. Where do you think uh, industry's going? Well, I mean, I thought when the new leadership at... Um the ACTU took over, they were saying the right things about uh, reversing some of the um, restrictions on unions, the right to organise, right of entry, um, right to industrial action. Those basic things were spoken by Sally McManus for some time. But in the last year or two, it's all about the ACTU propping up basic things that the, uh, the a possible incoming Labor government might do with... Um, with um, the healthcare workers and, and lower paid, which is all genuine stuff that a, a government should be looking at. But the ACTU should be pushing for freeing up the union movement per se, not to be given handouts by the government, just allow them to go and organise and get people in the union and uh, negotiate some pay rises on behalf of their members. Um, they're not allowed to do that anymore. And that's what a Labor government should do. And that's what the ACTU should be insisting the incoming, if, if they get in, the Albanese government should do. Not, not patting them on the back for a couple of small things, saying, well, thank you very much for that, you should be doing that, but actually doing something about um, the rights of unions per se. And that's, that's where we've gone backward in the last 10, 15 years. Let me put it to you that what you're actually very politely saying is the ACTU is as weak as piss. <laughs> <laughs> and really... Uh, on a more serious note, the problem is that the union movement have become the clients of the Labor Party. 
It's like joining the RACV. You you go to you pay some money, and you go to them and ask them for service. And if they decide not to give you a service, well, hard luck. They're making the decisions. There is not movement from the rank and file up through the unions, through the Labor Party, to actually do what is required. They don't respond to what is required. It is all about we will give you what we decide to give you. And that has been, to my mind, a massive change. And there are always arguments between the Labor Party and unions, especially militant unions, but the fundamentals have changed. That now you get the scraps from the table when the Labor Party government decides it. And given, folks, that we're only a few days away from the election, uh, I hate to predict the future, but I don't see change. But it doesn't matter who gets in. No. Yeah. no Fundamentals have changed. And, and unlike, unlike the campaign against work choices in, from 2005 to 2007, we had massive rallies around the country for two years, um, uh, we had at least set the agenda, the IR agenda, and there's no doubt that uh, Rudd and Gillard got in on the back of our campaign. They, they turned it around pretty quick afterwards, but... Less than two years. Yeah, less than two years. But this time, the union movement has got nothing to bargain with. The, the ACTU have basically put out press releases, uh, we've got to get rid of Morrison. Well, no one disagrees with it. Morrison's got to go. He's hopeless. He's useless. He's hated. But that's not the issue. It's what we're going to get after the election in terms of workers' rights. And no one's talking about workers' rights like we did in work choices. No one. Nowadays, you vote for a political party to get a pay rise. <laughs> one dollar. What, what a disaster. Absolutely. You're listening to Creatures of the Industry on Community Radio 3CR. Yes, indeed, you're listening to Creatures of the Industry today with Brian Boyd, who has been uh, in this industry since the early 70s and uh, has held many different positions in the industry as an organiser with the BLF, as an industrial officer with Trades Hall, Secretary of Trades Hall, uh, but there's one other position that you currently hold, which uh, I think we should reflect upon separately from the rest of the discussion, and that is Inkalink, and you are currently the chairman of Inkalink, and uh, I'm not sure that everyone understands the history of Inkalink and the issues that are there, and I don't want to put you on the spot because you are the chairman, but we could reflect upon the facts. Not the opinions, but the facts about Inkalink. And uh, maybe if you could give us your memory of how Inkalink came about and where it is today and some of the issues that we've had to deal with over the years which have made it a great fund, which is followed by many people. And recently, the Plumbers Union in New South Wales set up their own fund which is now incorporated into uh, the management of Inkalink so that we are getting away from ACERT and some of the other lesser funds and we're actually moving forward. Yes, I've got um, great expectations for Inkalink going forward in, in, in looking after the redundancy issues of building workers, not only in Victoria but eventually nationally, uh, the model. Um, yeah, I'm proud to be... Um, 
the chairman at this stage. Uh, the, uh, I was happy that my union, the CFMU, supported that and the employers went along with it, so um, happy to be the chair. I go back with IncoLink when it was first negotiated and started um, uh, in 88, 89 when, when the employers and uh, the state government and uh, the representatives of um, the then-to-be-formed CFMEU from Sydney and, and, and some of the Victorian people were involved and, and the Plumbers Union and all that. But the, um, the main reason it came off the back of, we weren't going to talk about it again, but the troubles of the 80s, mm. where one of the key issues on building sites for a long time was severance and redundancy payments at the end of a project. It was always a claim. Uh, there was a, there was always uh, a concern by the employers that sometimes the building workers on a site might delay the finishing of the site rather than go uh, finish it off and go to another site. They'd rather stay there and get a few extra uh, weeks' pay rather than so they they come up with the idea that redundancy fund might uh, take, alleviate the concern of uh, looking uh, at the gap between jobs. And there was also, of course, uh, an obligation under the award system to deal with the issue of severance pay for weekly hire uh, and daily hire, which was mainly the tradesmen and labourers, uh, in a situation where if they were long-term, there would always be an argument as the legislation was changed in terms of people's entitlements. So there had to be a way of working out your severance pay. The problem was, uh, if you did it individual by individual, some people were going to get cheated and some people weren't. That's right. So we went for a particular pro- proposal, which was an employer put aside an amount of money each week for each week that the employee worked for them and paid it out when they finished. Yes, and that, that, that uh, has been quite successful in filling the gap between people going from job to job. But of course, and uh, that's why Ecolink's so successful today. The um, it's oh, had did a I just interrupt. Yeah. Sorry, that didn't work too well because a lot of people went bust and the money disappeared. So that's why we ended up with the central fund. Yes, redundancy central fund. Yeah, and 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 regular payments in rather yes. than just you know three uh, like superannuation. I think still three monthly. Yes. Well, we're we're now monthly, I think, uh, and um, and uh, that makes sure we can keep a track of it uh, individually, or IncoLink itself keeping a track of what employers are paying in for their workforce. But it's had its ups and downs, IncoLink. But basically, it's developed into quite a sophisticated body, where not only are we looking after the redundancy accounts of individual building workers, and uh, and uh, and people from the industry in general. We've also got insurance packages and well-being packages on top of that. We're using the surpluses to invest into building projects. So there's work for uh, that's how much that we've got the surplus. We're investing in insurance packages for, for individuals and for well-being packages. And there's always a rule of thumb that we have more than 100% of our outlays. If, if, it, if, if, if every worker called in their redundancy fund at the same time, there's always enough money there to pay them out in one go. We've never had to do that, of course. And then the surplus on top of that with our investments and our, uh, our uh, investments in projects and so on, we're even generating more income to uh, offer more insurance packages and wellbeing packages. And we've got now uh, uh, the IncoLink bus, 
that was involved in the um, the COVID stuff last year, driving around site to site uh, for um, for um, jabs. Uh, we've we've got um, we've got insurance packages that uh, that if you're on um, leisure time and you get hurt on leisure time, uh, ambulance cover, you name it, all these things are there um, uh, provided by IncoLink for building work. And there ain't too many other funds like that around Australia. I mean, if you look at ACERT, which is the traditional fund, shall we say, which was set up uh, many years ago to cover New South Wales, Tasmania and a number of other states, I think, the ACT and so on, they uh, all they do is manage the redundancy payment. They don't use the, the surplus to benefit workers, and that's why people like the Plumbers Union recently, have come across. And while they want to control their own fund in uh, New South Wales with their employers, nevertheless, the model has been uh, taken to New South Wales and hopefully it'll be taken everywhere because it's already been taken to Tassie and the benefits down there are increasing as the membership is increasing. And Ecolink's making that uh, management service available interstate. Uh, and there's other discussions going on the, uh, as we speak. But of course, uh, it wasn't all smooth sailing. As he bites his lip and <laughs> thinks to himself, I'm getting set up here. It wasn't all smooth sailing because there have been arguments between the employer reps and employer bodies and uh, the fund and the unions over the journey. And uh, it ended up in court at one stage in the Supreme Court. Oh, as a witness at the court case, uh, yeah, but that oh, that's twenty, that's over twenty years ago now. That was um, nineteen, oh god, nineteen nineties. Um, yeah, the well, you know what happened, of course. The master builders of Victoria were going broke, and oh, they, really? And they saw they saw in the in the accounts of IncoLink, even in its early days, that it had a, a bit of pool of money on the side. For investment uh, and other proposals, never mind the, the money that was uh, looking after the accounts of the individual worker, and uh, they they tried to get uh, their slice of the pie. Tried to get part of the reserve. Yes, that was disgusting. Anyway, they lost the fight. They lost the fight, but it's never, in my experience, been a matter where employers just accept the status quo. They're always going to push. It is the nature of bosses. You can't, I suppose, complain about bosses acting like bosses where they're trying to maximise their dollar. That is the conflict in the industry. Now, Incolink, is that a demilitarised zone, in your opinion, or is that still an area where we push and shove? I think that's a good question. The, on and off, it's been a demilitarised zone where, both, where, where they can see the benefits uh, of, of, of what Incolink does never mind the unions knowing what it does for their members. But every now and again, you get ideologues from the NBA who are either on the board or, or are watching IncoLink, uh, and they follow uh, the philosophy of the conservative governments in particular federally that don't like anything that's done collectively between employers and unions. They basically just want a situation where we're getting now towards where the EBAs are so hard to get in some areas, where it's just the employees and the, and the employer working together and agreeing on something, and the unions have no say in it at all. And IncoLink 
shows that cooperation between employers and unions still can benefit every, the industry. And there are people in the MBA fraternity, if you like, who actually accept that, mm. actually think that's a good idea. But there's other ideologues who don't and would like to undermine it. So it might be uh, peace in our time most of the time, but you've still got to watch your back. Well, let's just remind the listeners that uh, the Howard government, work choices, included one particular feature which you have alluded to without being too blunt about it, and that is the idea of individual contracts. That's right. I mean, the fundamental view of the people you're talking about is this is all about individuals. You sell your labour to the boss and the boss determines what is good for you in terms of what's good for him. And that obviously is uh, the power of one argument and most people now in the uh, community know damn well that the power of one has meant that real wages are lower now than they've ever been and when it comes under pressure from inflation and all the rest of it, that it's only going to be collective action, collective power that gives them any chance. And that's why we need a, a more organised union movement. Can't play, can't play football with uh, 18 individuals. Well, you only have You've to got to play at, as a team. You, got to, you only have to look at what's happening in the gig economy, casualisation per se, uh, uh, the, the, um, the, the fall in wages over many years now. Um, it's, it's, it's everywhere and it's the philosophy of the Conservative governments in particular. Yeah. Of course, in terms of the CFMEU and uh, a number of the other building industry construction unions, collectively and individually as unions, they have maintained decent standards in, when it comes to income and, and uh, conditions. All the benefits that the EBA has given over the years. But what is also in my head is the thought that a trade union movement acts together and the strong might go first but they drag the weaker ones along with them. Sometimes they have to be uh, literally dragged but uh, especially if they're uh, more concerned with following the ACTU line than anything else but others just need help. Now this might seem a, a long way round to back to Inkerlink, but does the Inkerlink model have an application more widely than just the building industry? Because there are industries now, especially with casualisation, there's a lot more industries now where people move constantly between jobs. It might be that the meat industry the maritime industry, some of these industries where there were traditional casualisations, uh, that was part of the system, is now sort of breaking down, so it's even getting more casual. Is, is, there, is there some application for Wrinkle-Link more widely than just the construction industry? Uh, over the years, Ralph, uh, at Inkolink, um, we've been approached by a couple of industries um, the security industry, um, and I'm, uh, oh, I'm trying to think of the other two or three, uh, thinking that they can come on board Incolink uh, and get um, Incolink to manage their redundancy and other, and other benefits. It, we keep bumping into an issue that Incolink is still not covering everything 
or everybody, they should be covered. We've still got gaps with, the, with uh, uh, sections of our industry, of the, of the building and construction industry, that IncoLink hasn't still reached to. You know, and, and, and the MBA don't mind uh, sitting on the board and getting the benefits they can get, but they don't feel obligated in bloody getting other employers or even their own membership doing the right thing by IncoLink in terms of payments. So you could expand uh, into, in, into other areas and, and, and so on, but um, there's still that tension that we've got that we haven't cleaned up our own backyard yet. We've still got too many gaps, and we really should be concentrating on that. And, of course, the, if the pie gets bigger, then conservative governments are going to want to attack it, a bit like super. Yes, you're correct, and we've already had draft legislation sitting there for two or three years aimed at doing that, but uh, other things have st- got in the way of that legislation being implemented. Including some of the uh, Senate crossbenchers. Yes. So cheerio to Jackie <laughs> and uh, a few others there who have actually uh, thought a bit more broadly than uh, the bullshit that gets fed to them by government. Yeah, now, but it's still, standing, it's still sitting there just in the drawer. Yep, the indeed it is. Now, changing tack... Again, because um, we've gone for a reasonable time, are there matters that haven't been mentioned so far that you think have particular significance uh, to the industry or are there things that have happened over the journey which need to be addressed again? To my mind, the EBA issue is something that has to be addressed again because to some extent we've been led up uh, a blind alley uh, and we have to work out where we're at. But are there things that still have to be dealt with or need, need to be reconsidered and so on? Well, um, you know, I've been retired for a few years now, Ralph. I, I, I still think romantically, if you like, that the BIG was always giving a lead to other unions anyway uh, and also even at the ACTU level. I, I, would, I, would, I would hope that the BIG has more of a profile than it has at the moment. I don't know what's happening there or, or what they're doing, but they should, they should be putting pressure on the uh, ACTU to open up um, workers' rights again, the issue in general. For, for, uh, and I'm not talking about the government legislating for us to what we do on the site. We're just saying let us go back in there and have the right to have a meeting have right of entry of officials, and ha- and have collective bargaining, and, and 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 leave us alone. We'll we'll deal with the employers. We don't we don't we need we need more pressure on this ACTU and all that on the workers' rights issue. That's the big standing thing for me. Well, the big standing thing for me is unions doing what they're paid to do, and I put it to you that one of the things the ACTU is not doing is actually looking at the issue of people who are getting ripped off. Hmm. They are more concerned with legislation about wage theft than giving people the ability themselves, individually and collectively, to pursue wage theft, to pursue mistreatment, to pursue uh, occupational health and safety uh, disabilities, the, the power of one versus the collective is, to me, the biggest issue. Totally agree. And, and it's not being recognised. No. It's not being 
uh, chased. Now, are there any aspects to working life in the industry which you think should be uh, noted as great improvements and are any things that still could and should be addressed? I mean, just off the top of my head is the issue of daily hire. Daily hire gave us a whole lot of benefits and precedents for construction workers who were employed for a guaranteed eight hours and that was it. Now, of course, uh, with the consolidation and stripping down of awards, inclement weather, which was a right for daily hire people to go home, for example, after four hours of rain or at 35 degrees, now applies to weekly hire workers who had to stay there. That could sit in the shed, they didn't have to work, but they had to sit in the site till knock-off time. Now that that has disappeared, have the employers opened up a new claim that might actually be turned to the advantage of working people? And that is to move from daily hire to weekly hire for everybody. If the so-called conditions for weekly hire are no better or worse than daily hire, why can't we all be weekly hire and then create a situation where there's an argument not about eight hours pay but about 36 hours pay? Mm. Are are there things like that that we should be talking about? Yes, but to me that's a specific uh, yeah. And I understand that uh, you've, you've got the specific, but we need the framework to chase those specifics, and that's what I'm I'm on about. We need to be able to be freed up to to go down that track and chase the, that one and this one and that one. The framework's not there, Ralph. That's the problem. The the EBA restrictions and uh, the, the limits on on the ability to organise workers and right of entry and unions being fined for even thinking about doing something. It's just too much. Really, it's got to change. Yeah. Well, there has to be a, I agree, a return to something that approaches a, uh, what we would have considered a normal aspect to industrial life of the 70s and 80s and even into the early 90s where people took action and, yeah, a boss can sue you for taking action, but in the end, you just want to settle the deal. Mm. That aspect is gone. Government has lined up with the employers and given them the advantage. Totally. But unions still have to have something between their neck and their ass, other than a union T-shirt. <laughs> and I think the mentality is also a problem. The psychology of industry, the psychology of so much of the union movement is, is a problem. I'll, go, I'll cut my wrist in a minute, but anyway. Yeah, no, no, no. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to blaming the, um, the peak council. The ACTU used to be able to lead from the top and encourage people to do things collectively, not just sit there doing press releases. Yeah. And we need, we, need, we need more central leadership to take us back up where people look at the union movement collectively rather than their own little sandhill that they've got at the moment. Yeah. Now... While collective action, we both agree, is what is necessary, this might be a good point just to reflect on some of the individuals who you've known over the years, both in and outside the industry, who did provide leadership. There's always someone's got to open their mouth first. Then you've got to back them up. But 
some of the people that opened their mouths and did their bit in the industry uh, for workers over the years. Oh, one comes straight to mind, it's Johnny Cummins. I worked yeah. with him at the BLF, worked with him after I, worked, uh, after I went to Trade Tool. I mean, there was someone who gave leadership. Uh, and we need, we need about another 20 of them at this point of time. Well, going back, you did mention earlier one particular person for whom I have a great uh, admiration and affection, the late Norm Wallace. Yes. A terrific uh, individual who did so much without promoting himself, did a hell of a lot with the VBIA, with the contract scaffolders, with so many different aspects of the life of a builder's labour. It's incredible. You can ring up, ring up Uncle Norm and get a little bit of advice. And uh, as I've said on some past episodes of this, I uh, did ring him up a few times and he gave me some good advice. And uh, I didn't always take it, but I learnt to take it. <laughs> well, I can't disagree with that. I, I got on very well with Normie Wallace. Um, and as you know, uh, even up to his last days, uh, we hung around with him and had chats with him and... He still had all his faculties and, you know, he sadly missed. I used to do the phone calls to him too when I was a BLF organiser, but also um, after I went over to Trades Hall for the little time he was left at the, at the BLF. He left uh, not long after I left, uh, him and Nancy. Um, the, uh, the man was sort of sought after by not only shop stewards and organisers, but even the contractors and employers used to ring him up for advice. You know, I've got this, I've got this safety thing, or I've got that, or I've got this organiser at, you know, yelling at me through the door, or whatever. And and normally would, uh, you know, take charge if you like of the issue, advise the employer, whatever, um, and even hand the phone to whoever the shop steward or whoever who's yelling at him over to Normie and Normie would work through the issue with um, the shop steward or the organiser and, uh, and then put the employer back on and he could fix things like that on the phone. Yep. That's his common sense approach. What about some of the other unions? Uh, well, Billy Davis. Billy Davis and I were thick as thieves for a long time. I met him at the Austin Hospital when he was a roof plumber when I was there as a scaffolder and a rigger. Sure he was a roof plumber? Well, that's what he was doing when I was... Oh, okay, right. <laughs> that's, that's what I was doing. I was lifting one end of the sheet and he was lifting the other because the, right. the boss, Costain, set me up there to help the roof plumbers. So there you go. That's where I met him. <laughs> right, oh, we won't argue with that. <laughs> but the thing I liked about Billy, besides he's, again, he was militant, he was into the collective of the BIG, he supported the building industry group of unions and he said it's better the union, the, the employers, sorry, the uh, unions... Uh, including his, worked together with the other unions. It was always good for when uh, organiser visits were being organised for the sites. He'd always be there with the painters, with the PWIU, whatever, and walk around. The other thing he did that impressed me was politics. And I'm talking about progressive left politics. His uh, office was always decorated in, you know, uh, stop the Vietnam War or leave Cuba alone or you know, Mozambique should be free or whatever. He always had this international lefty flavour about how the world worked, you know, and um, so he had these, that side to him. Forget about the industrial progressive union side for his union, but he also had that wider issue. And to the extent at one stage him and I were guests over at a conference, international conference in the Philippines, 
where we went together to a conference for two weeks uh, to check out the, um, the unions over there. So he, he, he got me to go there. He asked me to go with him. So, you know, he impressed me a lot. So you've got a uh, CIA file as well as an ASIO file, have you? Totally. <laughs> now, some of the other people that you've come across in, in the journey, um, do any of the employers stand out as someone who, in our perspective, were creatures of the industry? They weren't just in and out and stuff the consequences. They actually had <coughs> a view about the industry and its continuation and prosperity and at the same time didn't try to take workers down. Well, one comes to mind and I, I did mention um, there was sort of two types of master builders in terms of Incolink and things in general. You had your ideologues that were, uh, went along with the conservative government agenda of breaking up unions and employers working together and then you had some who actually understood there were benefits for employers in working together with the unions and one of them is a predecessor of mine, the former chairman of Incolink, David Murden. Mm-hmm. David Murden um, chaired uh, Incolink for a long time. Uh, he was part of the creation of it. Um, and he, he would, more than any of the MBA people I dealt with over the years, um, sing the praises of Incolink as an illustration of how the industry could work together. In, in the benefit of both the employers and workers together. He was one of that school. So Dave Murden comes to mind. Right. Now, let me throw a couple of other names at you. And without trying to be controversial, I just think that you have to look at these people and say what was their contribution. One was George Crawford. For many, many years, both the State and Federal Secretary of the Plumbers Union and... Uh, Big George was a big man and he started very young. I think he had just finished his apprenticeship when he became a, a union organiser back in the 50s and uh, he was a big bloke who went the distance, in my mind. Well, uh, I, I, I agree. I, I, I mean, he ended up in Parliament um, uh, in the Upper House and then he ended up being very crook for a long time from diabetes. So I remember George in the 70s when I was an anti-war activist against the Vietnam War and, uh, and also I mentioned about the campaigning against the sacking of the Whitlam government. So he was one of the unions that uh, a lot of people gravitated to, not just the BLF or the Waterside Workers' Federation, but also George Crawford at the Plumbers' Union. He would, he would actually open up his meeting rooms for all sorts of meetings about what was going on in the 70s in particular. That's where I got to know George. Uh, you know, he, he was a progressive lefty ever since whenever. And, um, and then I got to know him a little bit when I went working for the BLF. Um, I'd be, you know, uh, the union would send me over to see George now and again or Wally Curran and, uh, and seek, seek advice on some issue that was going, going afoot. Um, so, yeah, I, w- I spent a bit of time with George. And, yes, I think he was one of those sort of stalwarts that uh, we should be proud of. And certainly a contributor to the Victorian Building Industry Agreement yes. over many, many years because he was one of the original group of officials uh, with Normie Wallace and so on back... Back in 56. Yep. Now, let's be controversial. Norm Gallagher. <laughs> well, it's, it's not controversial for me. Um, 
I, I got well, on. It's, it, let's be blunt. It is controversial for yeah. a lot of people. Yeah. A lot of people loved him. I hated him. But in well, retrospect, you have to look at the whole story, and that's yeah. why I'm interested in your well, response. Well, the thing is, it's not a matter of love or hate. I've never hated Normie Gallagher. Never hated him. I, I got on well with him. He, he would have conversations with me and not other people. So I had to give him due respect. Um, I was honoured when he asked me in 1979 to go and work for the union. Absolutely honoured. Um, he, he, he welcomed me with open arms. He gave me car five. <laughs> he gave he gave me uh, uh, an area to look after and all that. And then within a year or two, he even gave me the city to look after because Camo had to go to North uh, to Western Australia and Jimmy Bacon had the to Pilbara. go to Tassie. Yeah, the Pilbara and Jimmy Bacon had to go to Tassie. So in the end, I got the city. Um, so I worked quite closely with Norm. I, I, I used to spend a bit of time in his office with him talking about stuff. But um, everything got overwhelmed by the Royal Commission and by the deregistration processes of, by 2000 and, sorry, 1982-83, things were getting un, really messy with the Royal Commissions and all that sort of stuff. So our conversations become more terse in terms of what was going on. And I spent a bit of time with him. Honestly, I never did anything behind his back. I said, mate, the union's got to come first. You, you bring me to these un- meetings with the bloody ACTU and all that sort of stuff. There's a deal on the table. And then he told me to get fucked and get out of his office and all this sort of stuff. So, but, yeah. but let's just look back at before those years. Did Norm actually demonstrate the ability the fortitude and that to be called the general in terms of the position of builders, labourers in the industry. Did he actually make a big contribution to wages and conditions and the reputation and the um, capacity of the union? Well, yes, he, he, he was called the general and, and I think he, enti- he was entitled to the, um, the name. Um, in the 70s, when I was on building sites, as we talked about much earlier, um, all the way through the 70s until I started working for the union uh, 10 years later, um, I attended all the branch meetings. Gallagher was um, uh, gave a lead uh, to the BIG on a number of issues, shorter hours, side allowances, all that sort of stuff. It wasn't just the, the BLF, all the other unions were involved, but he gave a lead on a number of occasions um, builders, labourers under his leadership would even take charge of the campaign uh, depending on what state a building site was in, whether we're pouring concrete or putting up scaffold or the cranes were there or whatever. Um, Gallagher had no qualms about using our industrial muscle to get gains for building workers, be it amenities, health and safety, wages and conditions, all the way through the 70s. It, he, he gave the lead and he was good at it. Did he continue the work of his predecessor, Paddy Malone? Yes. Uh, according, well, I, I, I don't think I ever met Paddy Malone. I'm trying to remember if I did. If I didn't, but I knew stories about him through Normie Wallace more than mm. Gallagher. Um, so Normie Wallace uh, said, yeah, the, the, the tradition of, uh, of Paddy Malone and pulling the builder's labour up by the bootstraps and making the union an effective union in the building industry was carried on by Gallagher after Paddy Malone. Yeah. 
because Norm did start in the industry in the early 50s and uh, I remember having a conversation with the late uh, Ray Collins uh, who was ended up the secretary of the BWIU but back in the early 50s out at the APM uh, site in Fairfield uh, Ray was the convener of the site committee and uh, it was all unions and young Norm as he was then uh, was uh, an activist in that in that fight and became a union organizer and worked his way through under Paddy Malone's leadership. Was there great continuity in the characters that led the union? There's so many put names I could mention and would be meaningless to most people, but in your view, was there continuity in terms of commitment, you know, integrity, all the rest of it? that was needed to build the Builders Labourers Federation but also build unionism in the trade and in the industry? Well, the answer to that is yes, there was continuity because, again, in the 70s, I got to know um, the organisation, the organisers' team that Gallagher had around him. Um, so uh, Paddy Donnelly, uh, um, Mick Lewis... Um, uh, what's his name? Ray Winstanley. Ray Winstanley, who I was trying to remember. Uh, Jim Bacon, of course. Johnny Cummins had already started by then. Um, uh, there's there's a, a large number. That Jimmy I'll, Fleming. Jimmy Fleming, who went to Martin Greeny. Martin Greeny was the one I was trying to remember. Martin, Martin Greeny. They all had um, their own individual style, but they all reflected uh, the idea and the concept that builders' labourers needed to be treated with respect and be paid accordingly. Yes, they, they all reflected that thing, that the builders' labourers were not second-class citizens in the building industry. But, of course, the BLF became the Australian Building and Construction Employees and Builders' Labourers Federation, which did cause some angst among uh, some trades. And... Just to finish, do you think that that may have been a negative when we look back on it now? Because we're remembered as the BLF, but that name change, which is clearly understandable because the builders' labourers were trying to get the coverage of the unskilled as technology and uh, work processes changed, but did that upset a few people on the way through? Well, it, it did, but the thing is, it, it was explained to us that, that we that we did need to have that wider coverage, and in those days, uh, coverage uh, uh, was registered and all that sort of stuff, and had a lot more weight than it does nowadays. And Gallagher explained to us at branch meetings that we needed the name change to protect um, the un, all of the unskilled. Um, because um, every now and again I think the iron workers try to claim some scaffolders and riggers and someone tried to do this and someone tried to do that. It was a defensive move um, to defend the, the builders' labourers in, in construction. And then, of course, the debate then happened around what was construction, commercial construction versus civil construction versus metal construction, all these things. Versus housing. Yes. So all these things happened. And, again, it goes back to the point I made earlier it's very understandable that unions have to try and protect their base and who they represent. But demarcations are a death knell for the union movement. So it's finding an answer to demarcations is the crucial issue. And then you had the concept of industry-based unionism. So there was always 
And Normie Wallace used to talk about this. We needed one big union for the building industry or the construction yeah. industry. That used to be talked about in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, always t- talked about. But, um, you know, everyone gets in charge of a sand pit and they, they want to keep hold of it. That's what happens. Well, indeed. We've gone uh, over two hours now. And uh, I'm sure there are many, many subjects that we could cover. And both of us are getting a bit older, so maybe our memories aren't as good as they should be for all the issues that we could uh, discuss. And there are, I'm sure, plenty. But two hours ain't bad. And uh, in circumstances where our guest, Brian Boyd, has, uh, as you heard, not exactly been... uh, as clear-throated as he would like to be because he's been coughing and spluttering a little bit. But uh, it's not COVID, but we're all now getting back to pre-COVID, which includes flus and yeah, cold. colds and everything else, and uh, we'll just have to put up with it. But, Brian, thank you very much for your uh, interview today, and I'm sure it will add to the conversation that needs to be had in the union, in the industry, and in industry and the trade union movement at large about where we are, where we're going and what can we learn from what's been before us. Thank you very much. And and thank you, Ralph, and and good luck with this uh, podcast uh, project that you're on. I think it's a very worthwhile one to do because of how important the building industry is. Righto, you have been listening uh, to our interview with Brian Boyd, a long-time member of the BLF, the CFMEU, and currently Chairman of the Inkalink Redundancy Fund. Creatures of the Industry, an ongoing series of oral history interviews about the building and construction industry in Melbourne and regional Victoria since the 1960s. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. The greedy MB.